Hey listeners, I recently launched an ad-free Serial Napper feed so that you can enjoy the podcast without interruptions. Elevate your Serial Napper listening experience by joining my Patreon community and get yourself an ad-free feed on Spotify. For just $2 a month, you can become a member today and unlock ad-free episodes while still supporting the podcast. It's super easy. Just visit Serial Napper on your Spotify app and click the button at the top that says exclusive episodes for subscribers. Don't use Spotify for your listening? No problem. Just visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper to get your episodes ad-free and enjoy uninterrupted storytelling while you get your naps in. Mother's Day is almost here. Have you found that truly special sentimental gift for your mom yet? Don't worry, I got you. MyLifeInABook.com is a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Here's how it works. Every week, MyLifeInABook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature And MyLifeInABook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges that she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and your children can treasure forever. Your mom has given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. I loved this idea so much that I've started my own My Life in a Book for my children to have. The thought of my son and daughter being able to learn about my life story as they grow into their own adulthood is truly special. It's been an enjoyable journey of self-reflection for me too, with questions like, which one event made the greatest impact on your life? It's brought back memories I didn't even know I had. I love it, and I know your mother will too. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SERIALNAPPER at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SERIALNAPPER for 10% off today. Hey everyone, my name is Nikki Young and this is Serial Mapper, an international true crime podcast. Tonight, we're heading over to Australia to cover the story of their worst serial killer ever, Ivan Milat, also known as the Backpack Murderer. He was known to abduct and brutally murder tourists and hitchhikers in southern Australia. It was pretty clear that he enjoyed what he did, and he provided no other motive for the gruesome crimes that he committed over more than a decade. However, until the very day he died, he maintained that he was innocent, and they got the wrong guy. With all of the evidence against him, one can pretty much surmise that Ivan was guilty. But did he act alone? This is actually a huge story, and it's taken me a while to get through it. I was going to cover it all in one episode, but oh my gosh, we're going to need a two-parter here. And guess what? It's ad-free. So 
let's jump in with part one. Before he was known as Australia's worst serial killer, he was a child, born on December 27, 1944, in Guildford, West Sydney, to Croatian laborer Stephen Marco Malat and Australian Margaret Elizabeth Piddleston. He was the fifth child in a very large family of 14 children, so with only two parents and a whole lot of kids, there wasn't much attention to go around. He was said to be quite an intelligent child by his teachers. However, he did have a very difficult home life that probably affected who he was growing up and would shape him as a human being. Both of his parents were very strict. However, the father in particular was abusive. Ivan would be subjected to beatings by his dad with a piece of 4 by 2 as he held him down with a boot in his back. The family also lived in a rural part of Australia, so mostly off the grid and out of public eye, which allowed the Malats to raise their children any way that they liked. They moved a lot across the country, basically to wherever the dad could find work. At one point, the large family even lived in a shed. Eventually, the Malat family did move into a three-bedroom house near Liverpool on the outskirts of Sydney, where the children slept in triple-tiered bunks. They were also very poor. With 14 mouths to feed other than their own, there was plenty of work and chores to go around. Ivan's father, Stephen, worked 10-hour shifts as a wharf laborer, and he arrived home late at night. The family also ran a market garden, which the children pitched in to help with, so they were also working really long hours just to support the family. And with all of this going on at home, Ivan began to put school on the back burner. He started skipping classes, and then he stopped going to school altogether when he was just 14 years old. It was around this time that Ivan also began to develop an obsession with guns. He would collect them, modify them by painting them or adding things to them, and then he would set up his own shooting ranges to test them out, which is all very typical of a boy living in rural Australia. But those who knew him said that his hobby really did become next level. He just became obsessed with guns. And of course, guns cost money, money that he didn't have. So Ivan began committing petty crimes, breaking into homes to steal money and valuables to resell, stealing milk money, just small little crimes like that. Actually, most of the Malat children would get into trouble at one point or another. It wasn't uncommon for the police to be called to show up at the home to question them about one thing or another. Police would even go as far as to say that the brothers would never give each other up, they were always covering for each other, and they described them as being wild and feral. Ivan, in particular, displayed antisocial behavior at a young age, leading to a stint in a residential school at age 13. Even his own siblings said that when they were kids, they were afraid to be around him because there was just something very violent and very off about him. Ivan's brother Boris would go on to say, Ivan was pretty normal up until 12 or 14. I heard about it from his mates, you know. They'd all boast about how they'd go out at night and do things with machetes. I heard he cut a dog in half with a machete while he was growing up. It was pretty clear that Ivan was troubled and his crime sprees saw no sign of slowing down. 
At 17 years old, he was in a juvenile detention center for theft, and just two years later, he was involved in a shop break-in. Then in 1964, he was sentenced to 18 months for a break and enter, and a month after release, he was then again arrested for driving a stolen car and sentenced to two years hard labor. In September 1967, at age 23, he was again sentenced to three years for theft. So clearly he had no regard for the law, and he didn't really care about going to jail or having a criminal record. And even though he was obviously troubled, possibly dangerous, to most people who met him, they considered him to be very friendly, outgoing, and even attractive. I mean, even though it's the 70s and he really liked to rock that handlebar mustache, he was a good-looking guy. And he worked hard labor, so he was physically in shape. In fact, it's known that he had affairs with at least two of his brother's wives, and he possibly even fathered a few children with them. So clearly, he was seen to be as charming and able to sweet-talk his way into getting things that he wanted. And while he was committing mostly petty crimes at this point, things were really about to escalate. When Ivan was released from jail, he got a job as a road worker for the Department of Maine Roads. It was legitimate work for legitimate pay, but this would also begin a string of violent attacks. In 1969, tragedy struck the family when Ivan's youngest sister, Margaret, was killed in a car that she was riding in that was struck in a head-on accident near their family home. Ivan was one of the first on the scene. Even though he had a tough exterior and was known to be violent, he did have a soft spot for his family, and he reportedly took it very rough. His sister passed away in the hospital, and within a month of his sister's death in 1971, Ivan would be charged with rape. This is the 70s, so hitchhiking is a very common way for people to get around, especially when we're talking about young travelers. So Ivan spotted two females trying to hitch a ride along the side of the Hume Highway on Easter weekend of 1971. He pulled off to the side and with a big, friendly smile, he offered the pair a ride and they said yes. However, instead of driving them further down the highway towards their destination, he drove them to a secluded field where he ordered them out of the truck at knife point. He told the women that if one of the women didn't have sex with him, he was going to kill them both. So one of the women subjected herself to the rape in order to spare their lives. And surprisingly, Ivan held up his end of the deal and he let them go. The women, of course, immediately went to the police and they were able to give a description of Ivan and his truck. And Ivan, he was charged for rape. While awaiting trial for rape, he was involved in a string of robberies with some of his brothers. Then he went on to try to fake his suicide. There was an upcoming committal hearing, but he decided to jump bail and he fled to New Zealand, where he stayed until 1974. Upon his return, Ivan was rearrested and the case, the rape case, it finally went to trial. Now, I'm not exactly sure why, but Ivan got lucky and he was acquitted on the rape charges when one of the victims changed her story. Maybe she was afraid of Ivan, or maybe her story had changed simply because of all the time that had passed. Maybe she wasn't clear on all the exact details. Either way, Ivan got away with this abduction and rape of the backpackers. 
And now he knew that it was a bad idea to let his victims go because they would likely go to authorities. So Ivan laid low for a while after all of this. He ended up giving up drinking and smoking pot, which he was known to do quite a bit. And he began working as a truck driver while still living at home with his parents. His gun obsession, of course, continued, and he continued to collect, modify, and shoot many, many guns. In 1975, at the age of 31, he met a 17-year-old girl by the name of Karen, who was pregnant with another man's baby. Actually, it was his cousin's baby. Still, the couple decided to move in together and get married, with Ivan raising Karen's son as his own. The marriage didn't last all that long. Ivan soon became abusive to his wife, and when he wasn't home beating her, he was away working on the roads. On Valentine's Day in 1987, while Ivan was away at work, Karen packed up the house with the help of her mom, and she fled, taking all of the furniture. Ivan wouldn't see Karen again until seven years later, when she would have to testify against him in court. My family is getting ready to make a big move across the ocean to a place where English isn't the spoken language. This isn't my first rodeo, so I'm making sure I'm fully prepared by learning the language ahead of time. Sure, I know I can use an app once I get there, but you'd be shocked by how much gets lost in translation. I want to talk like a local, which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in true accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go, and they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factors No Prep, No Mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factors chef-crafted meals that include different nutritional options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Healthy meal planning has never looked so good with Factors fresh, never-frozen meals that are also dietitian approved No matter how busy you are, Factor can help kickstart and maintain a new healthy routine by making it easy to enjoy nutritious meals on the go. 
Plus, you'll never get bored eating the same thing every day because they offer 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. We're talking restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon because eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. Personally, I love not having to overthink what I'm going to eat every single day because that's half the battle, and I don't have to bother with shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. But the best part is, these meals are delicious with ingredients you can trust. Crush your wellness goals this May. Head to factormeals.com napper50 and use code napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code NAPPER50 at factormeals.com slash NAPPER50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Now that Ivan was a free man, single again, and divorced by Karen, I guess he had a lot more time on his hands. Too much time. And you know what they say about idle hands. And this will bring us to Ivan's first two known murder victims, Deborah Everest and James Gibson. Both were 19 years old. They were from Australia and the pair had been dating for some time. Deborah had dark, long hair and a really beautiful smile. And James, he had this whole hippie look going, this whole hippie vibe that matched his hippie lifestyle. He had the long hair that ran halfway down his back. The two loved to travel across Australia, and they would often hitchhike as a means to get around. The pair probably felt safe doing this because they were traveling together. And I mean, who's going to attack a couple? But the pair would both disappear in late December 1989 during one of their trips. They were heading for the border town of Albury for a festival called Confest. They were actually supposed to be traveling with a whole group of their friends, but there was some sort of mix-up and the group had already left Sydney. So Deborah and James, they had to make their journey on their own. But unfortunately, they would never make it to the festival, seemingly vanishing into thin air. Of course, the truth would be more sinister. And unfortunately, they would cross paths with Ivan, who likely picked them up on the side of the highway, and instead of taking them to where they needed to go, he took them to a secluded location and he killed them. Both James and Deborah's families would file a missing persons report after not hearing from them in a few weeks and after they hadn't showed up to the festival. James Gibson's camera would be found on December 31st, 1989 in northern Sydney. Then, a few months later, on March 13th, his backpack was found alongside the Galston Gorge, over 75 miles from where their bodies would be found years later. Because of the location of these personal belongings, police weren't looking for the couple anywhere close to where they really were, which was deep in Belanglo Forest, in a particularly remote section, about 500 meters from a walking reserve known as Executioner's Drop. What a morbid name for a morbid location, right? There they would remain for about four years before their bodies would be found. And it's unclear exactly what happened during the altercation, because the only person who would be able to provide those details is Ivan, 
But what we do know is that James would be stabbed eight times with a large knife. One slice had cut through his spine, causing paralysis, and this was very intentional. This is something that would come up again and again, where the spine would be cut and the person would be rendered basically helpless, still alive but unable to move. He had also been stabbed multiple times in the back, the chest, and he had punctures to his heart and his lungs. As for Deborah, she had been beaten severely, and her skull had been fractured in two places. Her jaw was broken, she had knife marks on her forehead, and she'd been stabbed in the back. Their bodies would be left in a shallow grave in Belanglo Forest. Ivan's next attack would happen on January 15, 1990, when he picked up British backpacker Paul Onions who was hitchhiking south from Sydney in search of work. Spoiler alert, Paul did live to tell his story, and he said that initially Ivan was very friendly, he was warm, very welcoming, and so he had no hesitation in taking a ride in his white Toyota Land Cruiser. He described Ivan as having a very smiley, friendly face and a handlebar mustache. He also introduced himself as Bill. But while they were driving down the highway, Ivan's demeanor changed. He appeared to get very angry. He began ranting and raving, making racist remarks. He seemed to be a completely different person than who Paul initially took a drive from. Suddenly, Ivan pulled over to the side of the road, saying that he would get some tapes to put some music on, which was odd because there was a box of cassettes in between the men. Paul knew immediately that something was wrong and that he needed to get away. Keep in mind, this is all happening in broad daylight, on a road where vehicles are passing by, so all of this was very brazen. Ivan pulled out a revolver and a rope from under a seat and told Paul to put on his seatbelt that this was a robbery. In that moment, Paul made a split-second decision that saved his life. He threw the truck door open and he bolted, running down the highway for his life, leaving his backpack and all of his possessions, including his passport, behind. Paul was even smart enough to run in a zigzag pattern as he ran down the road, just in case Ivan was trying to shoot at him. And in fact, Ivan did ring out two shots, though luckily neither of them hit Paul. Paul was able to flag down a passing car who stopped and let him in, and the driver drove him to the police station where he was able to report the incident. And guess what? Even though this was clearly a serious offense, police didn't immediately act on the report, and it sat in a drawer for years, which allowed Ivan to continue on doing what he was doing. Paul returned to the UK, not knowing that he had likely just escaped death. Now, Ivan's next victim that we know of would happen one year later after Paul got away in January of 1991. Simone Loretta Schmidl, known as Simi, was from Regensburg in Germany. Against her better judgment, she had decided to hitchhike by herself to Melbourne, even though her friends advised her against it. Simi told one friend that the tourist book that she had read said that it was safe to hitchhike because, quote-unquote, all Australians were warm and friendly, and that it would be okay because she was carrying a knife just in case she had to defend herself. 
Well, she was on her way to Melbourne to meet up with her mother at the airport. Her mom was going to be flying in from Munich, and they were going to be doing a six-week camper van tour of Victoria before flying home together to Germany. It's likely that Simi hitched a ride with Ivan, who again was probably putting on that friendly Australian act that he usually did. Simi was a tall girl, and she was just as tall as Ivan. However, she would be no match for his loaded firearm that he always carried with him. He would have taken her down those secluded forest roads about eight kilometers in until they came to Ivan's usual hunting grounds. There, he tied Simi up. He stabbed her so severely that he would have severed her spinal cord just like he did with previous victims, rendering her completely helpless. Police say he did this because he would leave and come back later to attack them, and there was nothing that they could do about it. They were just unable to move, still alive, so he could continue to attack them. He would stab her six more times, puncturing her heart and lungs, and leave her body face down with her hands still crossed. Ivan then dug a very shallow grave and covered Simi's body with leaves, ferns, twigs, and he put branches in an X configuration so that he knew where she was buried. Meanwhile, Simi's mom would arrive at the Melbourne airport on January 24th. She waited there for hours and hours, but Simi never showed up. Eventually, her mother went to the information desk at the airport, and they were able to get her to the police station to report Simi as a missing person. No one, not her friends or family, knew where she was or had even heard from her. And again, another backpacker had seemingly vanished into thin air. Simi's mom held a press conference to get the word out, and her family, they continued to search for their daughter in this foreign country, but no luck, no leads, no information. It was nearly a year later, with still no sign of Simi, that two more German backpackers would go missing. 20-year-old Anya Habschied and 21-year-old Gaber Neigebauer would vanish on December 26, 1991, after telling their parents that they were planning on leaving Australia to return home soon. They were last seen on December 26th, and unfortunately, again, they had been picked up by Ivan Milat and taken to his killing spot in the forest. Gaber would later be found strangled with numerous stab wounds to the left and right sides of the chest, and again, the same knife thrust to the spinal area, which had severed the spinal column completely. His jeans were unzipped, but the top button was still left unfastened. It was almost like he'd been undressed and then quickly dressed again. It's unclear how Anya died, but she would have been decapitated and then left there in the forest to rot. Ivan's next attack would happen a little over a year later, on Saturday, April 18, 1992. 21-year-old Caroline Clark and 22-year-old Joanne Walters were a pair of British backpackers making their way around Australia. The pair had met previously at a backpacker's hostel in Sydney's King Cross, and at that time they shared a room. They got along really well, and they thought it would be nice to have friends to travel around with. And, you know, it would also be safer for two females, so they decided that they would begin to hitchhike together. And they did. They did exactly that. They hitchhiked together a number of times across Australia. 
This time, the two young women were heading south when they unfortunately crossed paths with Ivan. Again, the only one who knows what happened to these women is Ivan, or so the police believe, so we can only speculate. But they were likely hitchhiking and offered a ride by Ivan, who then took a different turn towards the secluded Belanglo State Forest, where they would meet their fate. What we do know is that both women suffered terribly before being killed and buried in the woods. Weeks passed without any contact from their parents. So the two families, they sprang into action. They alerted the police in the UK and Australian that the women appeared to be missing. At this point, it was pretty clear that there was likely a killer on the loose, someone who was specifically targeting tourists and hitchhikers. Police at this time did have their eye on the Malat family, but there was no proof evidence, or any real solid information as to what had happened to these missing hitchhikers. So there wasn't really anything that they could do about it. And at this point, no bodies had been found. So nobody even knew what had happened to the hitchhikers or if they were dead. Then in September of 1992, about five months after the latest victims, Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters went missing, a group of orienteers, which is basically a group of people who practice navigating with compasses and things like that, they stumbled across a decomposing body in the Belanglo State Forest. And this would begin the downfall of Australia's worst serial killer. And we're actually going to stop here because there's a lot to talk about and a lot of speculation as to whether police would find the right guy who did this, or maybe if they missed some clues to lead them somewhere else. We're going to talk through what happened to his victims. All of the evidence that was found, we'll go through the trial, the sentencing, and other theories about what may have gone wrong with the investigation. Stay tuned for part two coming in the next few days. I promise I'm going to wrap this up as quickly as I can. There is a lot of information here and we are just getting started. That's it for me tonight, though. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple or Spotify. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper or I'm on YouTube, Nikki Young, Serial Napper, all one word. If you'd like to become a Patreon and unlock some badass bonuses, make sure you visit patreon.com slash serial napper. Until next time, don't be a Dahmer. Bye.